You are listening to a sermon from the season of Lent at Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, visit us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. In the 2003 documentary, The Fog of War, former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara sums up his approach for dealing with the press towards the end of the film. He says, never answer the question that they actually ask you. Answer the question that you wish they had asked you. (laughs) Modern politicians have very clearly taken this message to heart, and it drives me absolutely nuts. I can't turn into an interview with a politician or a political debate or a Um, a press conference and expect to actually hear a sincere answer to any question that is asked. Instead, what I expect is for them to somehow listen to the question and then move on to their talking points, no matter what the question was actually about, and to repeat just what they want you to hear over and over again so they can frame things in the way that they want to be heard. In fact, when it happens over and over again, it feels like a a lack of integrity, a kind of dishonesty to never actually answer the question that is asked. And when we look at Jesus in the Gospels, there are moments where I think we can wonder if he's doing the same thing. There are oftentimes questions that are asked of Jesus where he doesn't quite give a straight answer. Certainly that is true of our Gospel reading today. He does answer the question, but not perhaps in the way that was expected of him or hoped for. Um, If you look with me in Luke chapter 13, our reading began in verse 22. In Luke's gospel, it's really significant here that Jesus has already set his face towards Jerusalem. He is moving towards Jerusalem where he knows that he is going to die at the cross, and he is moving towards this encounter with the powers of his age, moving towards his saving purposes for the nation of Israel. And as he's going on his way, he continues to preach about the kingdom of God, continues to call people to repentance, continues to call people into relationship with their father. And apparently in some of this teaching, people have picked up that Jesus has a particular view of what salvation means and of who is going to be saved. And so someone, we don't know who, sometimes we know that it's a scribe or a Pharisee. In this case, we don't know anything about the person who comes and asks. Someone comes and asks Jesus a question. In verse 23, they ask him, Lord, will only a few be saved? They're probably trying to get Jesus' answer to a debate that was kind of going on at that particular period in history. There were some that thought that all Israel would be saved that God's purpose for salvation was going to draw in all Israel to himself. And there were others who thought that only a few would be saved. Of course, people didn't agree on which few. That latter group is probably, it's well represented by some of the intertestamental literature that we have. In other words, the, the books that were written in between the Old Testament that we have and the New Testament that we have. Um, the book of Second Esdras, which is one of the apocryphal books, kind of has a really good summary of what they thought about the few being saved. In um, Second Esdras, chapter 8, he says, He answered me and said, The Most High made this world for the sake of many, 
but the world to come for the sake of only a few. But I tell you a parable, Ezra, just as when you ask the earth, it will tell you that it provides a large amount of clay from which earthenware is made, but only a little dust from which gold comes. So is the course of the present world. Many have been created, but only a few shall be saved. Now, in the Anglican Church, we do not turn to these apocryphal books as an understanding of the true doctrine. We wouldn't look at this for doctrine, but it is really helpful for understanding what people were thinking at the time as they wrote this book. They thought, there's this debate, will everyone be saved or will only a few be saved? And Jesus doesn't directly answer the question. But as is always the case in Jesus, his not quite answering the question that is asked is not a case of avoidance. He's not trying to slip around and get back to his talking points and just sort of have this agenda where he's not really listening to what's going on. In contrast, when Jesus doesn't quite answer the question that is asked, he's listening far better than the person even who was asking the question because he tends to answer the question, that, not that he wishes that they would have asked, but the question that they really truly needed to have asked. The question that pierces to their heart, the one that they're trying to avoid with their question. They want to draw Jesus into an academic debate about will it be few or many be saved. Compare him to the other rabbis. See where his stance is. And Jesus says, you're missing the point here. In his answer is strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. His answer draws the attention of the person who came and asked, not to whether the many will be saved or whether the few will be saved, which of course they would have probably seen themselves as among those few who were saved, but instead piercing to the heart and asking the question, will you be saved? Will you be among those who know the salvation of God? He expands upon that with a parable that he tells them. If you look at Luke chapter 13 again, beginning in verse 25, Jesus says, When once the owner of the house has got up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then in reply he will say to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I do not know where you come from. Go away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrown out. When we look at Jesus' response to this question and his turning of the focus from how many will be saved to will you be saved, it is a question that we also need to answer and look at for ourselves. Because one of the things that is going on here, even as Jesus points to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God, is it is a reminder that just because this man who comes and asks is one of the children of Abraham, one of the descendants of Abraham, it does not mean that salvation is his. Part of Jesus' answer is that 
the few will be saved in the sense that it is not those who have some lineage, some group that they're part of, some membership as part of the nation of Israel or some membership in a church who are saved. You cannot enter the kingdom of God on the basis of your affiliations. And he reminds him of this and points him to the truth and says, strive to enter through the narrow door. What does it mean to strive to enter through the narrow door? It's pretty clear from a couple of contexts what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean just come into the right gatherings and and be with the right people. As we've said, your affiliation doesn't save you. In fact, we talk about every week coming and gathering around the table that Christ has prepared for us. But there's something chilling in this particular passage in which they say, you ate and drank among us. And yet, he says, I don't know you. When we come and gather around the table, just being here around the table is not enough. Just being present with those who are eating and drinking the blood of Christ does not save us. Even receiving the bread and the wine in itself does not save us. There's something more that Jesus is looking for. Something more that he calls us to. It's also not just knowledge that saves us. Even within the parable that Jesus taught, the people said, you taught in our streets. There's at least the implication that they listened, perhaps, to some of the words that he said, I would hope. But just hearing the teaching doesn't, isn't enough. Just knowing that he was there and that the words of truth were spoken is not enough. Maybe even assenting to the fact that they were true is not quite enough. In fact, we see this in even the way that Jesus encounters the scribes throughout his time, those who were the students of the law, those who had studied the word of God most deeply, who knew it really well. And yet oftentimes he finds himself in opposition to them because their knowledge of the law has not turned into something that is a saving dependence upon God. Their knowledge of the law is not enough to save them. It is entirely possible to study the Bible deeply and well and to still have Jesus say at the end of the day, I don't know you. We could probably, many of us, if you read books, you could point to theologians in our modern era who write books about God and they act as if they have a position of authority But when you read what they write, when you see the way they live, you go, this person has not known God. It's also pretty clear that keeping the rules doesn't save you. This was, there's nothing in the parable that Jesus told that points to, well, did you follow my laws? Did you you keep all the rules? And if so, I'm going to open the door and get out of the way and let you in. This was in a fact, sermon again, the conflict that Jesus has throughout the book of Luke, in fact, the second part of the passage that we read, he's encountering the Pharisees, who were the group of people who were paying the most attention to the laws as they were written. And even though Jesus often calls out their heart and points out the hypocrisy in their heart, he's not really questioning their actual obedience to the law most of the time. 
there's some times where they miss the meaning of behind it and, and don't follow through on what they're supposed to do, but they were following the law as well as any person could. And yet oftentimes, Jesus says, you're not the ones. It's not you who are coming into the kingdom. The key to salvation in this passage is not our membership in a particular group. It's not eating and drinking the right things. It's not the knowledge that we have of Scripture. It's not even our obedience to God's law. The key to our salvation is being known by the one who keeps the door. And clearly we know from the rest of Scripture that it is Jesus who is the gate. Jesus who is the doorkeeper. When we talk of coming to the narrow door, Jesus himself is the cornerstone upon which many stumble. The question is, does Jesus know you? It's the most important question you can ask yourself in your entire life. Does Jesus know you? When we ask this question, even asking the question is, raises its own question. First of all, how do we strive to be known by somebody else? I, I even kind of know how I can strive to know someone. How do I strive to be known by someone? And besides, doesn't God know all people? If he's the creator, doesn't he know who I am, whether I want him to or not? But the way that Jesus is talking about knowing and being known is, again, not a matter of the intellectual understanding. It's not either that God knows all about you. He does. He knows every detail of your life. He knows every sin that you've committed. He knows every good thing that you've done. He knows the desires of your heart. He knows the number of hairs on your head. But that's not what is at question. The question is, has he known you in the sense that he has had a relationship with you? Other parts of scriptures actually really help to frame this. It's not really talking about knowledge in the sense that we would talk about knowledge when we talk about God knowing us. We're talking about love. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. And even in this, there's a surprising way that this is framed. We would expect it to say, like, if you do this, then you will have accomplished this. If you love God, then you will know God. But that's not the way it's phrased. It's if you love God, you are known by God. Because this is the most important thing about you. This is the key to salvation. It still is not anything that you have done. It's grace because it's God's hand working. Are you known by God? And what you can do is love God. Jesus said the great commandment, we read it this morning, was love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. This is what he wants of us. Do you love God? And if you love God, you are known by him. The striving that we can have is to love God more to love God more fully, 
to obey that great commandment, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not a matter of just keeping the rules and going through the motions. It's not a matter of coming and reading the right thing. It's not a matter of of coming and hearing the right teaching. It's not a matter of coming to the table the right number of times. The question is, do you love God? Because if you don't love God, you can do all of those things and they mean nothing. There are people who, by their sense of self-discipline, can read their Bible every day. By their sense of self-discipline, they can go to prayer every day. By their sense of self-discipline, they won't miss a week of church. But if they're doing it out of their self, if it's just by your own power, your own decision, your own choice, and there is no love in what you're doing, It means nothing. Do you love God? Do you understand what he has done for you? Do you understand how great he is? When we come and worship, is your heart stirred by remembering what God has done for you, by remembering the grace that he has shown by remembering the cross and the resurrection. The question that is before us is how can I grow in love of God? I'm going to give you answers that are going to be completely unsurprising. And what I want to point out here is that the way that we do things is just as important in that we do them. One of the first ways we can grow in love of God is by reading our scripture. Wait a minute, Pastor, didn't you just say reading your scripture doesn't save you? It depends how you read the scripture. If you read it to gain knowledge, if you read it to have the right answers, if you read it so that you have a sense of self-justification, that I've read enough and therefore I've accomplished my duty, I can check that off the box for today, and now I'm done then it's of little benefit for you. God can and still does meet us in those moments sometimes. I'm not suggesting that you only read Scripture when you feel like it, when your heart is warm and it's something that you want to do. But when we read the Scriptures, we aren't just looking for knowledge. When we read the Scriptures, we are looking for the voice of God to be active, for us to understand and to know Him more. In John chapter 10, Jesus tells the, talks about himself as the good shepherd. And he says, my sheep hear my voice. And again, not they know me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. One of the keys to growing in love of God, to being known by God, is to hear his voice. And where his voice is revealed in many places, but where his voice is revealed most plainly is in the scriptures, in our Bible. We read the Bible because this is the word of God. The voice of God speaks to us through this text. And if you read the Bible and you come to it with an expectant hope that I am going to encounter God, that he is going to speak to me, I'm going to learn what his voice sounds like. So when he speaks to me in other ways, I know the voice of the good shepherd. My mind and my heart are tuned to his voice. 
This is why we read the scriptures above all. Because God speaks to us through his word. And there are times where we don't feel that way. Where we come to it and we we come and we come with expectation and it just becomes words on a page to us. Not every single day that you read your scripture, the Bible, will you have an encounter that you go, oh yes, that was God speaking to me. But we come back again and again and again because he does speak to us there. Because there is richness that we're looking for and we desire and thirst for that encounter with him. This is where the discipline piece comes in. We're coming to it not again out of self-justification, not out of a hope to gain knowledge, but because we are hoping for encounter with the living God. And when that is what we're seeking for, when we are seeking for God's encounter for us, then we can come back to it and it is the word of life to us will draw us as well into prayer. Because we're looking in love to be in a relationship with God. Again, there are times that we pray because it's something we know we're supposed to do. But we come back to it and return to it again and again and again because God is our Father. And we love Him. We speak out, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Because we know that he loves us and listens to us. We are his children. My girls, my daughters, come up to me and they crawl up in my lap and they ask me to read them books. Or my oldest daughter is at an age where she wants to just practice having conversations with me. She just loves those moments where she can stay up a little bit later than her younger sister and just talk about her day, about what's on her mind. And she actually has moments where she says, like, I'm, she had moments where she said, I'm not very good at conversation. But she wants to be with me. And so she comes to me and she practices talking to me. And she gets to the end of it and there's delight in her life. We had a good conversation there. And sometimes it falls apart because she doesn't listen to what I'm saying. (laughs) Or I'm tired and distracted and I'm not really listening to what she is saying. God never has that failure for us. But this is the desire that God has for us in prayer. We come and we have a conversation because we want to talk to our Father. And sometimes we say, I'm not very good at having a conversation. Will you teach me? Will you come and talk to me? Help, help carry the conversation because all I can do really today is listen. What can we talk about today? And we trust that he will. That what we are looking for in prayer is not just something we can check off the list, but something that we can have, again, that encounter with God. We want to be known and we want to know him. Another way that we can grow in knowing God it's through obedience. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the parent loves the child. By this we know that we love the children of God. 
when we love God and obey his commandments. For the love of God is this, that we obey his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God conquers the world, and this is the victory that conquers the world, our faith. Who is it that conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? When we are entering into that relationship with God, when we are pursuing Him with love, then our obedience is not burdensome. Our obedience is actually a joy and delight. We obey God's commandments because that is how we can grow in love, how we show our love for Him. There are times where we're not going to feel like it, but we trust that God our Father loves us so deeply that our obedience to Him is for our own good. I'm sure that in some ways I sound like a broken record. The pastor told me to read the Bible, to pray, and to obey God. How surprising. But it's the heart of the matter that I want you to see and to hear. It's the heart of the matter that Jesus desires for us. We do these things not out of some idea that checking the list is what saves us, not out of some idea that we can prove our merit and worth to God, but we do them because we trust that God loves us. I feel like this is actually at the very heart of what it means to be a pastor, at the heart of what it means to be a Christian and to walk together, to share the hope that we have in Christ, not just for me, but for you. When we gather together, this is what we are drawing one another to. This is what I desperately want for each one of you, to be able to say that you love God, that you are known by God. The only way that we can really have the assurance of this, that we can feel it with our entire being, is when the Spirit of God is given to us. We cannot achieve this on some by following the process, by striving on our own. This is the grace that God given us, is that even His Spirit is given to us to remind us that we are known by God. If you look at Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, it says, Because you are children, because you are children of God, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that by nature are not gods. Now, however, that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits? How can you want to be enslaved to them again? Notice what Paul does here. The Spirit is given us, and he begins to say, so now you know God because the Spirit resides within you. And then he goes, or rather, what's really more important than your knowledge of God is that God knows you. God knows you, and he desires you to call him Abba, Father. He knows all of your sins, all of your mistakes, and he desires for you to call him Father. He knows everything that you have ever done, and Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers or sisters. 
If you have received the Spirit of God, you have received a spirit of adoption. And this is the good news of the gospel. That means that God knows you. You can look forward to that day when on the very end where he hands you the stone that has your name on it because he knows you fully. He knows who you really are more than you know who you are. He knows who you are. Or we can look back at the 1 Corinthians 13, which we just read, and we can have that moment where it says that uh, knowledge will pass away because right now I see is in a mirror only dimly, and I will, right now I know only in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. We seek to know God, but our knowledge is always in part because we are sinful beings and we don't know him entirely. But already, through the spirit of adoption that we have received, in him, if you have received that spirit, you are fully known. And we are waiting for that day when we see in full and we know God as he knows us. This is the hope that we have. And we have it because of Christ and what he has done for us. There are times where we will turn to sin and we will walk away from God, even if you have been known by God. There are times where we will fail, where we will stumble. But I tell you this, if you have known God, if you have been known by God, if you have received his spirit, what you will find over and over again, is that that turning away from him, whatever you thought would satisfy, doesn't. Wherever you thought to have some sense of joy apart from God, it becomes ash in your mouth when you try to have it apart from him. That's why we fast during Lent. The good things that he has given us, when we receive them through God, are gifts. And when we grab and take them for our own and we grasp to them, They just become a curse to us. If you are known by God, if you have his spirit, you will have a desire, a deep desire in your heart to turn back to him again and again and again, repenting, turning away from sin, because you know that as Peter said, you alone have the words of eternal life. You alone are the one that can truly satisfy. I've seen, like the woman at the well, that you are the one that has the spring of living water. Nothing that I can do can ever fill me. Nothing I can do can ever fulfill me. It is in you alone that I can find my joy, my satisfaction, my hope. If you have not known that in your life, if you have never had that experience of realizing that it is in God alone that you can find your deepest satisfaction, I turn to him now. Right after the passage that we read, Jesus laments over Jerusalem. He says, I have desired to gather you underneath my wings, but you have rejected me. What should have been a moment of joy in my arrival into Jerusalem It's one of sorrow because I have offered. I have stood at the door and held it open for you. And you have not entered. You have not understood what was on offer to you. Come in. But the door is not open forever. The door will be closed one day. And if you have known God, if you have been known by God. 
there is something else you're turning to in your life that you're thinking you're going to find satisfaction, that you're thinking you'll find some sort of joy apart from Him, it will not work. There is no other source of life. Repent and turn back to Him, the one who knows you, the one who loves you. Turn to the one who set his face to Jerusalem, knowing that he would die for you. And what we find in Jesus' final answer to the person that came and asked him is, in a sense, Jesus answers and says, There will be the few. There's the narrow door. But at the end of that passage, he also opens things up to say there's actually more than you would expect because he says that there will be people who come from north and east and south and west and who will recline at the table with the Lord, who will be there in the kingdom of God. The answer really is not the question, it's not the person asked the wrong question. It's not, will all Israel be saved or will a few of Israel be saved? The answer is that God's kingdom is open to many. And people will come from every nation and tongue and tribe. The invitation is extended to you and to me. But there is only one way. There is only one way. Only through Jesus. Only through what he has done. Only through the spirit that we gives, that he gives, can we learn to truly love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and thus be saved in the kingdom of God. So turn to him today. If you have not ever done it before, do it now. Do not delay. The door is not open forever. None of us knows the number of days and hours that we have. If you have done it before, and yet you see ways that you have turned your face away from him, repent again and turn back to him. There is no other life. And if you're walking in that joy right now, celebrate. Share your hope with us. Let us see it in your face and in your words. Tell us about the goodness of God so that we too can have our hearts turned back to him. I desperately desire that all of us will be able to say with confidence, the Lord knows me. May it be so. This was a sermon audio from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church, a community of gospel hope in Fort Collins, Colorado, inviting you to join us around God's table. Find out more online at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord.